Let me put this to the side over here. I need to put it over here. Uh, if you have your Bible this morning, we're going to begin in the book of Isaiah. And the title I've given the message this morning is A Sign. So I want to begin in Isaiah chapter 7. Pretty excited about this message. Um, this is one of those times that uh, the message really is more born out of my own time of praying through the scriptures, and I'm pretty, pretty stoked about that. Isaiah 7, not that I don't pray into the other messages, but this just came out of my own times of prayer. Then the Lord uh, spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol and, or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Listen, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And he will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So, Lord, I ask you that you just talk to us this morning uh, by your word. We trust you for it, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. A sign. You know, um, it was likely not one of my most sensitive moments. Um, it was October of 1996, and I had the privilege of being able to travel to the Netherlands with my, with my dad and my three brothers. And we were, um, we were having a moment that was... Um, pretty amazing because we were able to, to put into real time the places that my mom and dad had talked about all of our lives as we grew up. Now, I spent most of, you know, I, we, we immigrated to the U.S. when I was three, and so when I would hear stories, now you, those of you who've been out west know that like a, a town in, in the West is quite a bit different than even cities in the Midwest, right? You know, like towns, I mean, just there's so many things that are so, so different. So <clears throat> when I would hear them trying to describe the, the, the town that they had grown up in, what it was like to live through the Depression, through the World War II, it was just, it was like, how do you, you see pictures and you just try to imagine it. And so we had this experience of being able to kind of be together, and I, I remember the first night that we spent, we were in a in a B and B uh, near the home of my uncle and aunt. It was at that time the only living sister of my then deceased mom, and uh, her husband. They lived in a little town called Dedemsvart, uh, Drent, which is the province of the north central of Holland. And so my brother Paul and I were, were restless; we can't sleep, so we're walking in this little town, this little village. And we're walking down this path next to this cobblestone street, this tree-lined, and, and, you know, just, I, I turned to my brother and I said, 
oh, it's, it's like this little village, time passed it by. And, and so I turned to him, I said, man, if the trees and the stones could talk, what they could tell us. Um, and, and, you know, again, we're, we're, we're trying to get the context of the story that was our parents, which really essentially was, was our story. Um, my mother grew up. Her father passed away when she was three. Uh, her mother made provision for her and her sister and worked. Uh, it was, she had a difficult time, but she ran a, a store in uh, the little hometown that my parents came from in Balin. So she lived above this storefront in this little village. My dad just lived outside of that town as a farmer. Uh, and, and he, you know, talked about the, the windmill, that he, the actual Dutch windmill that he went to with his uh, father, and they, they ground the, the uh, grain there. Well, we got the chance to see these places. The church where my parents, you know, in that time, they wouldn't get married in a church. They would get married at the courthouse and then officialize the wedding in a church. Interesting way of doing things. But that's the way they would do it then. And so, you know, all these things that are happening. So, getting context for it. But then it was, I don't know, somewhere in the first day or two that we were there, my oldest brother uh, was able to convince my father that we should make a stop eight kilometers away from their hometown of Balin in a place called Vesterbork, or we would pronounce it Westerbork. Um, it was there that there was a Nazi internment transit camp. And my dad didn't want to stop there. And there's a good reason for that. Um, to the best of our understanding, um, he spent 11 days in that camp. Um, 13 years earlier, Denise and I had had the chance, when just newlyweds, you know, we'd only been married about a year. We were on a missions trip that we're doing in, in uh, Europe, and we, we actually were able to go into Holland, and I met my, my dad's oldest brother then. He was still alive then, and my dad wasn't there, and so it was my uncle and aunt showing us around the town. We're trying to figure out what they're showing us through their little bit of English, and I know no Dutch. And so, you know, we're back and forth. And, and my, my uncle had taken me to this little park near their hometown. It was like a, it was like a country park, and it was, I, it was cool. I just didn't, wasn't sure why we were there. We walked the paths. We saw some different things. No exhibits there at that time. Thirteen years later, I recognized that when we got there with my dad and my brothers, that was the park that we were at. And now there were some exhibits that were in place. And it was incredibly sobering for me because I thought, here I am walking on the ground that I didn't realize my dad had been imprisoned on that ground. And it was kind of a holy place in the story of our family. My dad was there for, for a good reason. He was helping the underground, and so uh, he was caught doing that. Miraculously, he was released uh, of the over 100,000 that went through that particular camp. Most of them went to Auschwitz and um, 
in Poland and a couple other camps, but most of them ended there, and that was the end of their story. Of the 100,000 that went through, over 100,000 went through the camp, only 5,000 survived. My dad's one of them. That's sobering. And so I, I, I remember, you know, how difficult it was for dad to even be there. And finally, he just said, I, I, I need to go. And he began to leave. And I was putting two and two together, and I was like, oh, my word, this is incredible. So my brother's cat, you know, got a hold of me and said, we got to go. Dad's dumb. We got to leave. And I, I, you know, again, now I started out by saying this wasn't my most sensitive moment. A little bit later in the day, a few hours later, the brothers, we all decided it was a time to get something off of our bucket list. It was a day that we wanted for a long time as young men to drive on a highway that has no speed limits. In order to do that, you've got to go to Germany on drive on the Autobahn. We're like, you're going to do that? Let's do it. Dad's like, no, I don't want to do that. Not Dad, we're doing it. So we headed towards the border. And as we approach the border, I'm in the back. And by this time, you know, hours have passed. I thought it would be kind of funny. This is well before 9-11. I thought it would be kind of funny. I, now again, let me give a little backdrop. I was the compliant child. My dad would, would say, you know, I basically raised myself. I was the guy who was, you know, I have a couple of kids that were like that, but he said, easy to, easy to parent, that kind of thing. And so I wasn't, I wasn't the one always causing trouble with my parents or with my siblings, that, that sort of thing. So I'm in the back of the van, this, this little minivan, and I thought, hey, you know, I wonder if I could get a reaction out of my dad. So I held my passport up to the window as we're in queue to go through passport control, and I shouted, I'm an American citizen. I'm being held against my will. I thought it was funny. Um, now, for clarity, we were several cars back. Nobody could see us. Nobody could hear us. But, man, did my dad get fired up. Sitting in the front seat, what are you doing? Shut your mouth. I'm like, okay, you know, I got a good laugh. I passed my passport up to the front. My older brother's smiling. And, and my oldest brother said, Ben, stop it, stop it. Your dad's actually pretty upset. And, and, you know, they were laughing, I think, because their younger brother had committed an act of treason. But, hey, you know, got dad all worked up. It wasn't until we, you know, a, a little bit after we'd gotten through the border, I, I, I hadn't factored in, oh, this, even though it's been years and years, and my dad's told me about the fact that he had forgiven the Germans, it was still really hard for him, just, just across the border. And he was actually, at that point, nearly in tears. Now I'm embarrassed at my choice of humor and uh, very quiet in the back seat. But after we got past the border, it was just, Probably 20 minutes later, we're trying to make our way to get to the Autobahn. And I look off to my left, and I don't recall which one of us saw it first. But we saw one of the most beautiful rainbows I've ever seen in my life came into view. And, and as we pointed it out, then we noticed it wasn't just one. It was two complete rainbows. Now we're saying, stop the car. So we stopped the vehicle, and as we piled out, 
you know, my dad is now in tears, and he's rehearsing what I'd heard him say before many other times as I grew up. He said his father taught him that rainbow is a sign of God's covenant. And he repeated the times that that rainbow had spoken to him in his life in Holland. And, and it was a reminder of the, God's covenant of love with him. One of the most graphic being when he had dropped off my mother in, uh, the, at the Ellis Fischel Cancer Hospital in Columbia, Missouri, discovering again that the cancer had returned and knowing it was not only devastating news, but that he would have to get in a car and drive six hours back home and tell his kids. And he talked about that when he went and he laid his head on the pillow. He couldn't sleep. He opened the door to the hotel that morning, getting ready to drive back home to, to greet us now as teenagers and tell us about what was, going, what was happening with their mother that he saw a rainbow and he wept and he said, God, I know your covenant of love will carry me and it will carry us. And so here we are in Germany. Here's my dad with his boys and we're all quiet but staring at what we all knew to be a sign of God's tangible mercy. It's a sign I'll not forget. I believe in signs. Let me be really clear about that. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. A sign into the valley of man's violence, destruction, angst, failure, Brokenness, suffering, pain. God has placed a sign of his goodness in his son Jesus Christ. God with us. Higher than the highest obstacles. Lower than our greatest failure and brokenness to reveal light, life, beauty. And beloved, that is good news. A sign. You know, our text is one that's often quoted during this season. I'm sure you've probably heard it. This passage out of Isaiah 7. Here's a sign. Virgin. Give birth to a child and she'll call his name Emmanuel. But yet we often miss its context. King Ahaz, not a great king, but he's king of Judah. And the context of Isaiah 7 is he's just received the worst news he could ever imagine. He has just found out, along with all of the people of Jerusalem, that the king of the north has made a treaty with the king of Syria. They are outgunned, outmatched. They're ready. They're going to come in and they're going to march against Jerusalem. And with, with such an overwhelming force that fear has touched the heart of everyone, including the king. It says there in Isaiah 7 that their hearts were trembling like leaves in the forest. We've all had those moments. And the Lord comes and he says to Isaiah, I want you to go talk to the king. And I want you to tell him, take care and be calm. That almost sounds like 
You know that be calm and carry on comment? Don't be faint-hearted. Have no fear. Why is that? Isaiah 7, I'm not going to read that whole passage, but watch this. The invitation to Ahaz was to place his faith, to surrender his faith to the possibility that something could be greater than the obvious strengths of the kings that were coming against them. That something could be greater than what was threatening them. Now, there's something to ponder. And so I want you to notice in Isaiah 7, if you read the whole text, the call was not to a better strategy, but simply to surrender to an idea. God and his goodness could be greater than the fierce threat of the kings of the earth? Be calm, don't fear. And so here's the invitation. Just, just ask for a sign. Make it as deep as Sheol, as high as the heavens. Ahaz doesn't ask for a sign. It looks like piety, but it's not. What we're going to find out after a little bit here is that his heart was actually fascinated by power and glory and the might of man. So, see, King, King Ahaz knows history. And here's the history. The north and the south part of Israel is separated by a valley. It's called the Valley of Jezreel. It runs all the way from the Mediterranean. It goes almost all the way over to the Sea of Galilee. And this, this valley was an intersection historically between the north and the south. Whoever controlled that area uh, had, a, had a control, uh, really controlled the entire region. It was a hotly contested area. And so... Ahaz is like, ay, 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 if they get control of that, it's over. Ask for a sign. He doesn't. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and he call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Now, I want us to notice a couple of things. First of all, this is, a, this is worth remembering. God's sign is not seated in reason. but the mystery of faith, okay? Something greater than man's rationale. It's going to be not, not, not just a bigger army. Oh, I could believe in that. I'm going to bring you military aid. Oh, great. But here's the sign. A, a, a virgin pregnant? It's a paradox, Go figure that one out. Explain that one to me. And see, beloved, that's what faith is about. You see, the reality of God with us is that it is a mystery. We proclaim and believe God is three and yet one, right? Correct? Right? And we, we, we believe this, this proclamation, Jesus is fully God, fully man. Explain that one in your reason. You see, the sign of God is, not the, is about the rationale of God, not the reasoning of man. I can give you a, a list of things that can't be reasoned out. 
give me a really good explanation, a reason or an explanation for love in scientific terms, you're not going to be able to find one. The sign is about the mystery of God's love, his abundant goodness and mercy and grace. The sign is the power of God coming in self-giving, self-emptying love and forgiveness. Here's the sign. It's a paradox. It's not about your reasoning. It's about God's rationale. Now, that word, I, I, I was captured by it this week. I was thinking about this sign. First shows up in Genesis 1.14. First time we ever see that word used in the Bible. And, and that word is, um, it, it roughly translates out of the alphabet in, a, in three different words, three different letters, I'm sorry. Uh, but as you begin to, and it's there in Genesis 1.14 that it says, uh, this is the sign, there'll be a, there'll be a light, you know, uh, a, one light of the sun for the day and uh, one for the darkness and separating the day and the night, and that's the sign. That's the first time we ever hear that word sign. But, but Isaiah said, God is going to give you a sign. So I, I, I thought, you know, what, what does this word sign look like? What's it about? Three letters this is where it becomes a real interesting thing. Can you throw that first slide up there for me? Yeah, the black and white one. There's three alphabetic words, and they're not going to be in the order on this first slide that you're going to see on the screen here, but it comes out as three words, Aleph, Vav, and Tav. So the, okay, Let's take a look at that. The Aleph, if I look in the, in the Paleo-Hebrew language, which would be the first version of the Hebraic language, it is more of a pictorial language then. Aleph looks like an ox because, well, an ox is the, the leader, and, and it's, it's a vision of strength. So... It's also the very first letter of the alphabet. You can talk for a long time about the Aleph. First letter of the Hebrew alphabet, it's the picture of the leader and, and strength. The second letter that's used there is the Vav, which isn't in that particular order on this slide, but because it, I don't have time to explain why. But um, it, it is representative of a, of a nail or a tent peg. Something that's used to secure, something that's there to bind something together. It's like a hook. And then the tav. Well, the tav actually in the in the uh, Paleo Hebrew, it's showing on this particular picture in front of you like a like a, a, a cross. But actually in Paleo Hebrew, it's more like an X. It's just a mark that is to signal or, or be a monument of something. Interesting. The Aleph is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Then we have the, uh, the, the Vav, which is the, a, a nail or a tent peg. And then we have the Tav, which is this X mark or a, a cross sticks, the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And, and as I begin to think about this, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting and thinking like, whoa. This is pretty interesting. Am I seeing this? Throw that next picture up. The sign in 
the Paleo-Hebrew language, when the prophet Isaiah says, here's the sign, here's what they actually are rooted in, something that is begins with God himself, the leader who's binding himself together in a covenant. Wait a minute, I've heard that before. I'm the beginning and the end. The alpha, the omega. I'm going to bind myself to you. Beloved, the sign is the sign of Jesus Christ, the face of divine mercy. I, I had with me, sitting on my desk this morning, I don't know why I forgot it, so I had to run into the office and grab a couple of nails. Uh, Preston has made for me a beautiful cross made out of nails. Beloved, the sign is the sign of the cross. Do you see this in front of you? Let's take a look at this again. The Aleph, the Vav, and the Tav, the leader who's bound himself to a covenant sign is Jesus Christ. This will be a sign to you. A, a child's going to be born who is God with us. The one who's come and bound himself in covenant to reveal the relentless mercy of the Father to restore and to make whole. There's the sign, God with us. Now, I was praying earlier this morning, earlier this week. I was praying this morning too, but praying earlier this, in the morning this past week, and, and I'm reading out of Isaiah 4 and 7 and 9, and then I'm looking at Isaiah 9, and I saw something plain as day, and I'd never seen it before. And I thought, why in the world have I not ever seen this before? In Isaiah 9, after the proclamation about the sign, there's a familiar passage in Isaiah 9. It's about the, the government of Jesus. But, but at the very beginning, it says there'll, there'll be no more gloom or anguish as in earlier times. He treated the land, now listen to this, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, with contempt. But later, he'll make it glorious by the way of the, other, by the, way of the sea and on the other side of the Jordan of the Gentiles. And the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. A little bit later, uh, a child will be born unto us. A son will be given. The, the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government of peace. You remember that valley? that I talked about between the north and the south, the Valley of Jezreel. A couple of little cities are near there. One is Zebulun and one is Naphtali. One city in that valley is the city of Megiddo. Megiddo is a place that some historians say, probably correctly, no other city has been destroyed as much as the city of Megiddo. 26 times that we can document, possibly more. That's discouraging because they would come from the north and destroy because they wanted control of that region. See, in 600 B.C., the king of Egypt, Pharaoh Thutmose, said to conquer Megiddo was to conquer a 1,000 cities. This city in the valley of Jezreel had known unspeakable violence, destruction, suffering. Every time it was destroyed, the foundations of that city, and they rebuilt that city, got a little bit bigger, a little taller, 
In fact, a hill began to be formed, and that hill was referred to as the Hill of Megiddo. We have a reference to the Hill of Megiddo in the book of Revelation. 1616, it says, Har Megiddo, or you might be familiar with it as Armageddon. One time that word is used, but it identifies it in that valley, in that place. Isaiah proclaims in Isaiah 9, or a light's going to come into that valley. A child is going to be born. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal God, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of the government, there'll be no end. Matthew carefully records this in Matthew 4. Write this down, 12 to 17. After his baptism, after his time in the wilderness, he came, Jesus, settled in Capernaum, leaves Nazareth. Capernaum which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. A light has come to the people who sat in darkness. Matthew says, this is that. Did you catch that? Where did Jesus' ministry begin? He begins to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Where was that? In the valley of Jezreel, in the valley of Armageddon. All my life I've heard a message of the coming of Armageddon as something to be fearful. When the kings of the earth are going to wage war against Jesus, but wait, Jesus already came to that valley and as a sign of the goodness, mercy, grace and, uh, of, our, of our Heavenly Father, He overcame sin, hell, death, and the grave. Isaiah 25, look it up. He swallowed death up. And He turned it into a banqueting table. And Isaiah 25 says, He'll wipe every tear from their eye. Wait, I've heard that one too in Revelation 21. This is that. Say. The earliest known church building in Israel was discovered in 2005 near Har Megiddo. It's dated to AD 230. It was discovered with the help of prisoners because it was found under a maximum security prison in 2005. It is the oldest known church in Israel, older than the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, there was a witness there. Why? Because Jesus began to proclaim the rationale of God, revealing the goodness of God, fulfilling what was spoken to Ahaz. Here's a sign. Here's the rationale of heaven. It is going to come to man's worst and reveal heaven's best by way of the cross. Jesus, you've already invaded Armageddon. Yes. And your message is what? Change the way you think about me and about the world. So what does all that say to me? A couple of things. Uh, I talked about this a little bit last week. You know, what sign am I going to be captured by? The cross of Jesus Christ that came into Armageddon. 
Maybe, maybe in my life, as I think about the obstacles that are around me or in my life personally, corporately, maybe there's something greater that can change my world, the love of God revealed in Christ, the love of God revealed in human lives. Ahaz, his greatest failure, he didn't ask for a sign because he did not have an imagination that God in his goodness was greater than what was facing him. How do I know that? I can tell you that for sure. 2 Kings 16, we see this with absolute clarity. Those two kings that he was threatening, they were gone. But in 2 Kings 16, he goes to the king of Assyria. He takes gold and silver out of the temple, and he goes to the king of Assyria, and he says, I'm your servant. There you have it. He revealed who his God actually was. He's not going to look to Jehovah. He's going to look to power and wealth and strength. His greatest need was to change the way that he actually thought about God. So I want to say, again, this really, really clearly. I do believe in signs. I don't have time to talk about all that this morning. I'm actually out of time. But um, they're not always explainable to our rationale. That's the paradox. That's faith. Okay? Can, can I just say this to you with some assurance? Not one person you talk to today that can explain everything in their life through a microscope. You just, it's not possible. Science can't explain. Let me give you an example. Can't explain shame and despair under a microscope, but they know what it feels like when it's gone. Oh, wait, science can prove what it does to our biology, to our bodies, when we have peace in our life. So I do believe that we encounter personal and corporate signs. And the best way to respond to them is with gratitude and to recognize, oh, my goodness, that's, that's not just a happenstance. But the question this morning is this. As I am in this season, what sign will I be captured by? The uncertain winds of the culture, politically, economically, socially, or God with us? You can, your goodness is enough. Now, higher than the highest obstacles, lower than our greatest individual and corporate failure and brokenness, here is your sign. He's God with you, so be calm. Don't fear. The goodness of God revealed in Christ is enough. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government. There'll be no end. That government looks like well, Jesus said, it looks like a cross. So there's the sign, beloved. Into man's violence and destruction and pain, God placed the sign of his goodness in his son, Jesus Christ, God with us. Higher than the highest obstacles that we face, lower than our greatest failure and brokenness to reveal light and life, forgiveness, mercy beauty. That is the gospel. Amen. I want to invite us this morning to respond with a closing prayer together and then coming to the table. So would you stand with me? If those, I don't know if we, we had a, we had a couple other people on the call earlier, but uh, let's, let's just join together. As we come to the table, let's pray this prayer together. God of hope, 
You call us from the exile of our sin with the good news of restoration. You build a highway through the wilderness. You come to us and bring us home. Comfort us with the expectation of your saving power made known to us in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen and amen. Lord, as we come